0: All right, well, welcome back to our Summer of Psalms series. Uh, If you're just joining us today, we are taking a break from our current series on the Sermon on the Mount to dive deep into this uh, refreshing pool of poetry and song, to immerse ourselves in the prayer language of the Bible, to be washed over with renewal and refreshment. And you know, it, it is summer after all, so here we are. Uh, If you did not get one of these last week, go ahead and grab one of our summer reading plans from the information table as you leave today. Uh, We've broken up the entire book of Psalms to be read and prayed through. Uh, One every morning, one every evening, from now until the end of August. And so I just encourage you just to join us as we pray together in the voice of the Psalms, as these songs become our prayers, and and as we pray as one with, with one mind, one heart, one spirit, one love, and one purpose. I hope it's a great experience for you and, and I'm excited to, to hear how God speaks to your heart as you go along. So uh, looking forward to that. Uh, the Psalms are this, is this collection of poetry that's set right in the middle of your Bibles. And, and it's, it is this vast collection of imagery and, and metaphor that tells us the same unified story of the Bible in, in all the other areas of Scripture, but just from a different angle, a different perspective essentially. Uh, the gospel of God, the, the good news that he has for humanity, that's still presented to us even here. And and you might think that the Psalms are just a this random collection of poems, and you can just go and pick out the ones that you like the best. And, you know, I hope that some of these poems are actually your favorites. But the Psalms are, in fact, this this carefully curated work of poetry that works to retell the biblical story of redemption and invite you, in a way, into this, almost like this literary temple, where, where this space where God dwells, where his presence overtakes us and, and where we can find our rest and security. So, so the Psalms, essentially, are, are, are inviting us into... The, the, the temple, the dwelling place of God. Now just think about this for a second. The Psalms are preparing our hearts to enter into the temple of God. And, and that might not seem like you know, a, a big deal on this side of human history after the cross and the resurrection. I mean, the author of Hebrews will declare pretty dramatically that Christ has appeared as his high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, made with hands uh, that uh, made not made with hands that is not of his creation and so we're used to like the letters uh, to the church that describe that we are both individually and collectively the temple of god where the holy spirit indwells within us and the presence of God is seen and experienced, and so having like a physical dwelling place, like a temple where God's spirit would reside, just doesn't really make any sense to us on this side of humanity. But, 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 but just hear, the, hear me out for a second. And this is incredible. This is not the circumstances of the psalmists. King David. Uh, was write, he wrote about half of the Psalms, about 70, uh, 74 of them, 72 of them, a- including Psalm 19, the one that we're going to read today. And David is writing with all of this temple language and, and welcoming in the presence of God into the holy place. And yet, uh, this is the crazy part. The temple in Jerusalem was not a thing yet. It had not been built. And it would not be built In his lifetime, he would not live to see the temple of God constructed. So what David is writing here is not based on his own present reality, but a hoped-for one. When the presence of God would someday, he was sure of, it would touch down on the earth and dwell with people. So this psalm was not written for the age at hand. This psalm was written for the age to come. And so now, as we experience the very presence of Yahweh that dwells among us and through us, even now, David's psalm can ring as true for us and even truer than when it was first sung way back then. And so, for also for us, as we are waiting on Christ to return for this day when his presence is going to be fully realized in us, and for Paul, as he says into the church in Corinth, we will all be changed. This psalm has drastic implications for us. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll open, up, uh, open up to the text. So Father, we just ask that today, your, your heart, we, we just ask that your, your prayer to us, this, this psalm as we read, that would invite us into your presence this morning. Father, I take comfort in the fact that that we do not invite you to come into our presence but that your presence is open and waiting and welcoming for us to walk into it God we understand you invade our space but that but that you you freely openly welcome us into your throne room. So I my prayer today, Father, is that we would just be bold and willing and trusting in what you have done for us, that we would be able and encouraged to come through those doors and sit at your feet. We just thank you and, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so go ahead if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn them to Psalm 19. Now one commentator that I read described Psalm 19 as the problem child of the Psalter. And another commentator referred to it as the greatest poem in the Psalter. And not only that, but one of the greatest lyrics ever written. And so obviously there are two sides to this story here, but, but I am going to go with uh, the latter scholar on this one. Psalm 19 is all about the way that God's heart speaks in these different ways that are surging deeper and deeper into our inner being, calling us forward into obedience, aligning our hearts ultimately with his. And and what we find as we are exposed by these searching sun rays of God's presence is that nothing is hidden from his sight, but all is caught and transformed and prepares us for a right relationship with our So let's get into David's poem. There are are three parts to Psalm 19. Part one is about the heavens, part two is about the law, and part three is about the self. And so you have the outside, the inside, and you. And we find that speech, that the way in which we pour out communication, the ways in which we reveal the true nature of ourselves, that is central to each Part of the poem. So let's get into part one, starting in verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end and nothing is hidden from its heat. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, when I read this, I am reminded a little bit of that that moment in Exodus 34 when when Moses is speaking with Yahweh and and Yahweh declares his, his glory. He speaks of the goodness of his nature, of his kindness, of his mercy, of his compassion. When God speaks, his glory is revealed to man. Now, David describes the same thing here, but it's, it's a little bit different this time around. Now, look at this. This is fascinating. David does not mention Yahweh, the name of God in this first part. He only speaks of El, meaning God, the, the divine being. And the big difference here is that creation does not speak to the personal, our personal God of Yahweh himself, but only to a divine presence that that stretches across time and space. But it does speak. The psalmist says, actually, that it pours forth speech. And, and one, one author, William Brown, says that, that this is more than just like microwave radiation hissing about. It's more like an eruption, like this explosion of rays and light and heat that just, just emanates out and touches everything. So the message of creation in Hebrew is... That that word message in Hebrew, it's like this image of a bowstring that stretches out wide and taut and, and clear, and it speaks volumes even though it is not heard. In an unintelligible, inaudible way, creation speaks of the creator. Now, every nation throughout, throughout all history originates with some sort of divine creation story, I don't, if you knew that. But there are, there are some scholars, even, who would argue that the, our biblical creation story is not the first ever recorded, and actually that the Babylonians had an earlier story, and, and so it, you know, and it's not uncommon for a nation to have a divine being crack the void and form uh, of life. And so that is actually pretty much a given. And so sometimes that argument, when we share that, that can rile up Christians because we like to think that our origin story is the first origin story and that everybody else copied us. But I want to ask you this question. What if the creation story did not originate with us? And the creation story did not originate with them. What if it came from creation itself? There are divine origin stories of heaven and earth in every major and minor religion, old and new, because the divine power and transcendence of the created world is clearly perceived. Ignorance, that's not uncivilized, that's just wisdom. And and wisdom, at least biblical wisdom, is this, that through careful observation and critical thinking, how do I come to know and respect and honor God through my observation of space and time, of my relationship with others, of learning how the world works, both in the revolutions of the day and night and, and how humans treat one another? See, the fact is that I come to know my place in this world first by knowing God's place and seeing how he works in life and how he works in me. And that has nothing to do with how educated you are. That has nothing to do with your ability to memorize facts and figures. It's all about how creation and life and humanity and relationships Speak to your soul and communicate something that's deep and true. In other words, wisdom is not like knowledge in that knowledge is heard. It is transmitted. It is heard and spoken and read. Wisdom is not heard. It is beheld. It is simply beheld. sometimes there's this misconception that if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be someone that that God is happy or pleased with, then you have to constantly remove yourself from from matter, from, from all the, the physical distractions of the world and, and you have to just go and sit in a corner and read your Bible and study all the time and pray all the right theological prayers and call out all the false teachers properly and promptly on social media because apparently that's the only right use of social media which is to call people out for sinning. <sighs> but the psalmist reminds us here That even creation speaks to the glory of God, that knowledge does not produce wisdom, and that our understanding of who God is does not begin in here, it begins out there. That is what prompts us. That is what sparks the divine interest. That out there is what draws us in to know more, to seek more than just a narrowly human existence. That is part uh, one of God's self-disclosure. Psalm 19 is all about how he reveals himself to the world, outer, inner, and me. Before we move on to part two, David's going to give us just one more stanza that we have to encounter first. He says, mountains and oceans and water and earth and stars and sky, they are going to move us with powerful nonverbal communication to this conviction that there is a God. As, as Tim Keller notes, that the world is not an accidental accidental collocation of molecules, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands, and that all people know at some level about God, truth, meaning, wisdom, and beauty, even if they suppress that knowledge. But, but the psalmist then moves from the, the general beauty and power of the heavens to this one specific celestial body, the sun. Now, all the stars and the mountains and the rivers and the expanse of the sky, I mean, that's all good and everything. But the sun, now that one is special. He says, God has pitched a tent for the sun. He calls this, the sun. he refers to the sun like this, this bridegroom that's coming from his home. And, and the sun is like an athlete that's running with joy and virility from, from one end of the heavens to the other. And so it's like the psalmist is gazing through these veiled eyes at the sun and he perceives the very presence of God in the sun that is dispelling chaos and this uncertainty of darkness. See, in creation, of of every created orb or, or object that there is, The sun is the body that most closely represents what God's presence does to his people. It it stretches across the earth. It searches us out. It brings light into dark places. It brings warmth and heat to cold bones. The sun restores life. The sun brings hope. It opens eyes to see. See, the psalmist declares to us, he says, if there ever was an object of creation that could give credence to a divine being in the world, they only need to look up and just be totally overwhelmed by the brilliance and radiance and purifying rays of the sun. So uh, what I want you to do is just hold that image in your mind, my friends, as we head on to part two. So, this is the part that, uh, that trips some people up, but I, I just I want to show you how all of it just connects together. So David is going to move from this, like, this artful observance of creation to this love story with, of, of all things, the law. Verse 7, the instruction of the Lord, of Yahweh, is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of Yahweh, now see personal name, is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of Yahweh are right, making the heart glad. The command of Yahweh is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of Yahweh are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. So now now somehow the psalmist almost like deftly moves from speaking about creation and declaring the glory of El, of of God, to to just relishing in the instruction of Yahweh. Now I'm going to spend just a few minutes geeking out over just verse 7, and then I'll let you know what's going on here. So he says, The instruction of the Lord, of Yahweh, is perfect. Now watch here. David moves from this generic El to personal Yahweh. The heavens, the expanse, those, those things that are transcendent and awe-inspiring and glorious. They lead me to wisdom and understanding, but do they speak to my heart? I mean, do I delight in those things? I mean, they speak, but I cannot hear them. But, but in this instruction, literally the word Torah, the law, that, and that's referring to the, the first five books of the Old Testament, when I, when I, in that, I hear the voice of Yahweh. I hear him speak. He says, it is perfect, tamim, complete. And when he speaks, he renews my life. Now, that word renew is shuv, meaning to turn 180 degrees. I was going one way toward destruction and destruction, death and separation from my Creator. I was, I was moving as far away from Creator as I possibly could, from any sort of personal relationship with Him. And somehow, the law turns me. Now this is interesting. The word shuv is also our word for repent, which is to, to change our, our mind. But, but notice, I do not repent. I do not turn. The law turns me. It renews my direction toward life. And, and life here, this word life is, is the word nefesh. And, and in Hebrew, it literally means the word neck or or throat. And that seems really weird, but 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 where is where does air come in through your body? Through your neck. Or does food and water come in through your through your throat? It's vital to your life. And so more commonly, this word also refers to your soul, your, your very being. The Bible does not teach that you have a soul. The Bible teaches that you are a soul. Genesis 2 says, God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the ruach, the spirit, the breath of life and man became a living nefesh he became a living being he became a living soul you do not have a soul you are a soul Your soul is your mind, your emotions, your spirit, all of this formed together into a human being. And so David is saying basically that the law of Yahweh, this story of redemption, and then every instruction of his ways, they are going to lead you to rediscover your humanity, the identity that you were always meant to have. When you follow the ways of Yahweh, you will find who you were created to be. Man, I could, I could spend all day just thinking about those two lines. Now, here's where the sun comes in. Now, you know how the sun, like I said before, is like this quintessential object of creation that shows us who God is, that speaks silently to the glory of God, this nature and character of God's goodness and grace and kindness and forgiveness and justice. David says the law this written word that, that speaks with the same blinding force and power and goodness and holiness as that son. So the son and God's word are one and the same, at, at least metaphorically. So just as an illustration, let Think about this for a moment. Have you ever experienced total and complete darkness before? Like like you've walked into a room that is so dark, so absent of light, that you can't even see your hand if you were to hold it up to your face. I mean, it's super disorienting, right? Like you have no sense of direction. You have no idea where you're going. If anyone is around you, you have no clue. There's just, there's nothing. It's, It's disorienting. It's isolating, it's confusing, and, and all it does is it, like it builds up this anxiety within you. There's, there's no sense of time or space or, or matter. You have no way of knowing those things. And it's, it's almost claustrophobic too, right? Because, because you can literally feel the darkness closing in on you, weighing on your shoulders and, and pressing inward and, and down on you. And then someone opens a door or shines a flashlight into the room. And then what happens? It's like there's this calm and relief that, that washes over you. And, and so what happens then when that light comes? What, what do you do? Your head, just think about this, your head is instinctively turned toward that saving light because light means redemption, rescue, hope, renewal. Your neck is, is, is turned, and all sense of reality is restored to what it should be. David says that is the true intent of the law. Notice what else David says about Yahweh's Torah. He says the instruction is perfect. His testimony is trustworthy. His precepts are right. His commands are radiant. Fear of him is pure. His ordinances are Reliable. The law renews your life. It makes the inexperience wise. It makes the heart glad. The law makes the eyes light up. It is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Now, is that how you tend to think of the law? see most of the like there 's this tendency, not just in the church today but in most of society, to view law and rules and and regulations as as life sucking not life giving in fact, we like to make sure that we have like properly dissected law from grace. You're not under the law, you're under grace. The law no longer applies. You're all about grace now. We, we love to just dissect and pull apart law and grace and set law aside or throw it in the trash can and just run headlong towards grace, right? But, but here, at least, David makes it seem pretty clear that at least for him, law is grace, in fact, David is pointing to the law as the clearest picture. Like He's like, you think the sun is the clearest picture of God's presence? No, the law is the clearest pre- picture of divine presence, of this radiance of his character and his goodness, of this, this beauty that penetrates and shines and warns and, and restores the very being of your person. But I think this is where we miss the mark. So David says the Son speaks of a creator. And the law speaks of a personal and good God. But, but here's, here's where we fall short. Because the Son, although it speaks of God, it is not God. It only speaks of him. The law is also not God. It only speaks of him. The Son God is, is fickle. It, it Sabbaths every evening. Uh, the law God points out our need for life and our depravity without Yahweh, uh, but it cannot offer grace and salvation by itself. The son is a, it's a good image of God, but it is a bad savior. The law is a good image of God, but it is a bad savior. When the law becomes our God, it only serves to frustrate and confound and anger And so, and rather than point us toward our true being, it ends up reducing our existence and then it defines our existence. And so it, it, when the law becomes the God, it doesn't feel born out of the heart of a king whose decrees are good. It almost feels arbitrary and random and purposeless. It doesn't produce delight or joy, there's no sense of security Every act that's, that's mandated by the law is daunting and perilous and unstable and unsure. And your delight will depend wholly and completely on your ability to do right and not to do wrong. It does not create beings who are built for relationship with the one true God. And instead it creates Pharisees and hypocrites and mere shadows of what we were meant to become. So, what if we were to change our perspective on God's law? What if God didn't, did not give us the law to test us? He gave us the law to show us who he is. What is good and right and just? What is compassion and mercy and grace? What is forgiveness? What is holiness? What is kindness? What if God tells us what is good because it is good and that it is good because he is good? His laws are true because he is true. Every word, every decree, every command is rooted in his nature and it is as solid as the nature in which he has created C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Our delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. If you are struggling to find joy and delight and sweetness in God's commands, do you think the problem is with his commands? or in how you see your relationship with God working out? I mean, could it, could it just be that you have simply misunderstood and mischaracterized the nature of God's commands, and as a result, they hold a more sacred place in your life than God himself? See, if your head is not turned when the light of the law is shined, if your life is not renewed, then just bear with me, perhaps the problem lies not with the law, but with you. That that you are the one that's in need of rescue, and you are in need of of saving life. And that's going to lead us to part three. David says, the silent speech of creation alerts our hearts to the presence of a holy God. This spoken word of Torah is going to alert our hearts to our need for this personal God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The law declares the goodness of Yahweh. So then what, if those things are speaking out, then what is it that our hearts say? Do our hearts say the same thing? Or have we been speaking a different language? David's going to close out the Psalms with this like soul-searching question. He says in verse 12, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So this presence of creation, this God-emanating goodness of the law, they are meant to stir up a self-awareness within the one who seeks and searches for God. I love this. David prays that his unintentional sins and hidden faults would be found out and cleansed. He knows that the law not only points to God, it serves as like this litmus test for our own right relationship before God. It reveals the areas we did not even realize were holding us back from him. Now, here's the thing. We hate being exposed. Seriously, we hate all flaws and blemishes in our culture today. And that's why social media has all these filters. Like, we'd rather look like a puppy or a flower than for people to see us who we truly are. And, and if that makes absolutely no sense to you, just ask someone under 30 what in the world I'm talking about. Uh, for David, perhaps the sweetest, most beautiful thing in the world is how much it shows how exposed he truly is and how much he needs God. David not only points out how the light of the sun, the light of the law, reveals and exposes the true nature of ourselves, he, in, he invites it. Now, I would ask the same. Do we have the courage to do the same thing? To invite God's Light to expose the reality of our hearts. Now, why does David do this? Like, why does he invite exposure of himself? Like, wouldn't it be better and easier for him to just kind of put up the walls as best he can, just present himself as the most spiritual being? Like, wouldn't God accept him more if, if at least on the very outside, he had at least the image of the respectable, uh, pious religious man, David, David knows that God is not deceived by that. So he invites it in so that his speech, the words of his mouth, the words of his heart, that they would be a worthy offering, a pleasing sacrifice sent to Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the one who brings salvation and worth and value and restoration in life. Just like any Old Testament sacrifice, there was like any blemish or fault or unwholesome part is unworthy of being presented before a holy God and a, a pure God and a good God. So for David, at least, he's like, if, if my offerings need to be pure and unblemished, then man, shouldn't my speech and my thoughts and the desires of my heart be the same? Now, I'll ask you, do you bring offerings before God, like money or service or prayers or whatever, and you believe that that's good enough for God? Like, do you believe that God will be pleased with your show, with your presentation? Or is he working to expose the innermost parts in you, transforming them and cleansing them and bringing them into light? Does your true speech, the authentic, genuine movement of your heart, sync up with the outside act that you're putting on? And in fact, does it not only sync with that, does it sync up with God? Who cares what the outer presentation looks like? What does the innermost desires and direction of your heart say? To invite this sort of invasiveness requires courage. But most of all, it's going to take God turning your soul toward him, renewing your life and giving you the desire to want to be different. And he literally makes you different. And like David, that should be music to your ears, a delight to the eyes, a sweet aroma to the soul. Let's pray. Father, we just look to You have said that, that that your light has come to bring truth to the world. That we will find life and light in the midst of darkness. I'm grateful, God, that you do not make us guess who you are, but that you speak directly to us. And Father, more often, more than that, even greater than the Son, greater than the law, I am so thankful that you have brought us Jesus. that, That... That God, your word says that Jesus was a light that shines in the darkness and darkness did not overcome it. And that in him was life and that life was the light of men and that that true light gives light to everyone. God, we understand not everyone will receive him, but those who do, Become children of God who believe in, in your name, in the name of Yahweh, that we are not born. Because of that, we are not born of natural descent or of the will of our flesh or of the will of man, but of you. Father, I love the fact that John says at the very end of his, his intro of the gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, he has revealed him. Father, my greatest thank- thankfulness to you this morning is that we can revel in the fact that, that we might revel in the fact That because your son has come, we have seen the radiance of your glory and your goodness face to face through him. That the son has worked to burn within our hearts and move us and transform us and turn our lives toward you that in turning, we're not just saving ourselves from destruction, we are saving ourselves for a relationship with you. That we have a Father who loves us and cares for us and and pursues us. Father, would you just strengthen us up, build us up today, help us in our unbelief, lead us towards a deeper relationship with you. Help us, Father, to delight in the light-giving life that you offer. Give us courage, Father, when we struggle, when we are weary, when we are surrounded and overcome with darkness. Help us to find life in you. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.